Bethlehem is one of those words that we associate with Christmas. Most of the year we give no thought to the word Bethlehem and we never even use it. But then around Christmas time you can't avoid it. If we don't say it, we sing it. But like Christmas itself, Bethlehem is becoming steadily de-Christianised. In 1947, the time of the partition, etc., the population of Bethlehem that were Christian was 85%. By 1998, that 85% had dropped to 40%. And today, just some 15 years later, the 40% has dropped to around about 10 to 15%. It is in this generation... Bethlehem is no longer can be perceived as a Christian community or a Christian city. As the Israeli-American civil rights lawyer Justice Weiner uh, in a survey of human rights abuses under Palestinian rule, he found there were plenty of reasons for the exodus. Intimidations, beatings, land theft firebombings of churches, denial of employment, torture, kidnappings, forced marriages and extortion and woe betide the Palestinian Muslim who converted to Christianity. Little wonder the Christians of Bethlehem have left. Bethlehem and Palestine, the cradle of Christianity, the scene of the first Christmas is being depopulated of Christians and of Christianity. Now we here are preparing ourselves for Christmas by looking at the opening chapters of Isaiah. And today's passage, we're looking at three chapters. It starts with a wonderful vision of Jerusalem, the city of God. So we see firstly the vision of chapter 2 verses 1 to 5, which we read last week where the city of God becomes the capital city of the world and all the nations pour in to learn the way of the Lord, to be taught to live at peace with each other. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 3. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. For that wonderful vision of what Jerusalem will be in the future, that marvellous vision is followed by the passage we did read today, which speaks of the religious and social reality of Jerusalem at the time of Isaiah. Firstly, he describes the religious reality in chapter 2, verses 6 to 22, where God has abandoned his people to their own sinfulness, so that the city has become full of idolatry and pride. They rejected God and they were rejected by God because they no longer live as his holy, separate, distinctive people, but pursued wealth 
and filled their land, not only with wealth, but also with idolatry. So we read in chapter 2, verse 8, their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. The Bible is very clear in its denunciation of idolatry. Statues always misrepresent God. They never represent him. They always misrepresent him. They never show his power, for a statue is powerless. They never show his love, for statues are without mercy, without grace, without emotions. They never show his life, for statues are as dead as dead. They never show his speech, because they're mute, dumb in both senses of the word. They never show his rule, for they are stationary. While he rules over nations, we rule over them. They never show his ability to create all things, including man, because they themselves have been created by man. All the important things about God, the statue is irrelevant, is a misrepresentation. The unimportant, what he looks like, well, we don't know what he looks like. So the one thing we don't know, they show us, and the many things we do know, they completely deceive us. All the important teachings of the Bible about God are misrepresented and completely negated by idols. But notice how verse 9 talks of man being humbled. Verse 9, so man is humbled, each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. For man made religion always demonstrates and demolishes pride. It's like in Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament that the worshippers are always proud, claiming to be wise, they actually became fools. For in reality it destroys pride because there is a terrible foolishness in worshipping things that you have made. The early church fathers were a little bit more crude and real than we are in our polite society of the 21st century because they pointed to the fact that the birds knew what to do with statues better than we do and the dogs often raised their legs against them, which is appropriate, whereas a man will fall down before it as if it is something more than his own creation. Pride, though, goes with wealth. Pride goes with the great statues, the works of art and the works of our hands. And so in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 7, they have the pride of wealth, but in the long run their idols will not and cannot save them. And so we read, enter into the rock, in verse 10, enter into the rock and hide in the dust before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Oh, how men like to lift up massive high hotels with casinos at the top, overlooking a view that the players will never look at. 
At least the Star Casino used to be honest. It hadn't had any windows so that you would never be dissuaded by the light in the day or by the view of the harbour outside as you wasted your money in the gambling dens. But now we want to occupy the highest, best spot in our city to overlook the harbour so as to bring in people that we can fleece for their money from. And we must train our Indigenous people to serve them. The pride and arrogance of wealthy idolaters knows no end. It was in the ancient world, it is in the modern world. It is the same. And the theme of chapter 2 is that all that proudly stands against the Lord will be humbled in the day of judgment. Where he concludes in verse 18, over the page, verse 18, and the idols shall utterly pass away, The people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground, but from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. And in that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles, to the bats, to enter the caven of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs and before the terror of the Lord from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. But the last verse is one of the most striking of the verses, isn't it? Verse 22, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath for of what account is he? What is man that you are mindful of him? asks the psalmist. You make him just a little lower the angels and give him all power and authority to rule all things, but yet you look at man and what account is man in whose nostrils is breath. Stop regarding him as of any significance. For in the presence of God, man the idol maker, man the wealthy, Man the wise and clever, man the militaristic and powerful is as nothing compared to the Lord in his wrath on the day when he comes in judgment. So the vision of Jerusalem, of the capital of the new world order in the beginning of chapter 2, is immediately contrasted with this religious reality of Jerusalem, idolatry and pride which the judgment of God is going to destroy. He's given them free reign to be stupidly sinful and he's coming to stop them in their stupidity and sinfulness. And then in chapter 3, we see another description of the reality of Jerusalem, this time the social reality. And again, it's nothing like that wonderful vision of chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, 1 to 6 where all the nations live in justice and peace. Because from now, in Isaiah's time, we see the downfall of the city, where there is no justice and no peace, but the overwhelming threat of warfare, where there is a crisis of leadership and the destruction of the women's wealth. For God is about to turn the tide from the arrogant pride of wealth and prosperity to the enslaving humility of poverty and adversity. And this will affect and be affected by the failure of leadership. 
For it is the leadership of a society which protects and directs a society, especially at the great time of warfare. But the list is there, the hero, the judge, the prophet, the elders. Anybody who's going to offer any leadership will be removed from Jerusalem. And instead, the, tr- the city will be ruled by children and infants. So you look at the opening of chapter 3. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and Judah support and supply, all support of bread, all support of water. The mighty man, the soldier, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain of fifty, the man of rank, the counselor, the skillful magician, the expert in charms. I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. Here is a besieged city in crisis. This is the kind of mayhem we've seen in the civil wars of North Africa in this last year or so, or in the Middle East that we are seeing now, the horror of the kind of warfare waged by child soldiers in the Congo or in East Africa. It's so easy to criticise leaders. Australians are really good at it, aren't we? But it's a very difficult and costly exercise to exercise leadership in a society. And a society without leaders soon collapses into mayhem. In verse 12, Jerusalem, being ruled by children and women, is a sign of both sin and judgment. We must pray for good leaders. We must pray for them and we must support them. For too often leaders will do as the Jerusalem leaders did, line their own pockets at the expense of the people. So verse 15, what do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts? Which brings us to that other rather extraordinary attack at the end of the chapter on the plight of women in the situation. For he describes the women in terms that are too close to the truth for the politically correct to hear or bear. The problem is that so often the wealth of the leaders is displayed in the finery of their harem. Uh, Remember Mrs Marcos in the Philippines and her incredible collection of shoes? It was staggering the wealth that was taken from that relatively poor country. To, sh- to, to, to shod the feet of one woman. So the daughters of Zion are described in verse 16, haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Their wealth is always on view in verse 18, finery and anklets and headbands and crescents, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets, the the signet ring, the nose ring, the festal robes, the mantles, the, the handbags, the mirrors, it's all there. It's so different to the abiding beauty of Christian women described in 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Peter 3 the inner beauty of the heart, the gentle and quiet spirit, the good works which cannot fade and will never be destroyed. But the outward, pompous, phony, arrogant beauty of the women of Jerusalem is to be destroyed in a moment when the war is lost, when the city finally falls, when the men are killed by the sword, for then they'll be taken away into slavery, in poverty, Shameful ignominy, 
At that time, having lost all dignity, they will do anything to hold on to life. And so chapter 3, outlining the social reality of the collapse of Jerusalem, ends with the appalling note of despair that is put into chapter 4 in the first verse where seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes, only let us be called by your name. Take away our approach. But then in chapter 4, our spirits are just as unexpectedly lifted by a new vision. The vision of chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, is like that of chapter 2. It's kind of bookended. We have this wonderful vision in chapter 2 and then the terrible religious shame and ignominy of chapter 2 and then the terrible social collapse of Jerusalem in chapter 3 and then suddenly chapter 4, back to the vision we go. The vision of a new day, a new renewed Jerusalem when the remnant of Judah will be purged and purified and become the holy people of God. We haven't read it yet so let me read it to you, verse 2 of chapter 4. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honour of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy And there will be a booth for the shade by day and from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. Suddenly the city is saved, the city is rescued. Here is the city people by people who have their names recorded in life for they live in Jerusalem. They live under the safety and security of God reminiscent of the exodus where the fire and the smoke went ahead of them so it will settle over them and they'll be protected protected from the heat of the sun protected from the storms that come and they will live in peace and prosperity as the special holy people of God as they were supposed to be Isaiah's day when he had these visions was a day of great wickedness And so while he is speaking of this wonderful day out the front, he keeps speaking of the present day and the judgment that is coming. It's a strange book to read at this point because your emotions go up and down as you read the book. One moment you think, this is marvellous, the whole world is coming to Jerusalem and the next minute you're thinking, God's going to destroy it before the world gets there. What is going to happen? For Isaiah's day, it was idolatry, arrogance, oppression and rebelliousness. And so he saw the judgment and yet at the same time, the saving of the remnant people of God. The wickedness was already part of the judgment, but a day was coming when judgment would fall 
And you see it referred to as the day, the day of the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 11, it talks about exalted on that day. And again in verse 12, the Lord has a day. And in verse 17, there is a day exalted in that. There is a day that's going to come for the people of Jerusalem and the people of Judah. A day of judgment. But it's a day of judgment that would bring a great reversal. The proud would be humbled. The idols they will throw away to the rodents, the baits and the moles. The leaders will be replaced by children. The wealthy women will be humiliated. For look at chapter 3 verse 9. For the look on the faces, their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They don't hide it. Woe to them. For they have brought evil on themselves. But notice verse 10. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. In that great moment of judgment, there'll be a great reversal. But all is not lost. All is not going to be destroyed, for the righteous will not go unnoticed double negative. The righteous will be noticed on that day by God and God's plan is to save the remnant of his people, purging the city, purifying the city, cleansing the city. Sadly and very tragically Isaiah's day came it came in a series of judgments of God. The northern kingdom of Israel with its ten tribes were destroyed never to recover in 722 BC. And the wealth of Judah under the long reign of King Uzziah in the southern kingdom, just prior to the time that Isaiah prophesied, that wealth was all lost by the Assyrian conquest. For the nation of Judah was destroyed by the Assyrians. The landscape was destroyed. Most of the villages and towns were destroyed. And the city of Jerusalem itself underwent an appalling siege by the Assyrians and was brought to its very knees before it was extraordinarily spared. But it wasn't even ultimately spared. For this kind of judgment happened all over again a hundred or so years later when the Babylonians turned up. At that time, Jerusalem was not spared. That time it was more than brought down to its knees, it was captured, it was ransacked. The city was destroyed, the temple was razed to the ground, the leadership were taken away as slaves into captivity. All the pride, all the arrogance of Judah was destroyed just as Isaiah had predicted. And yet, a little remnant was saved. The restoration of Jerusalem into a great city never happened. The turning of Jerusalem into the capital city of the world where all people would flood in to learn from God and to be taught by God, where the nations would come, never happened. Not until the first Christmas came. Well, not until Easter came, the first Easter, 
when Jesus died and rose again? Well, actually, not until 50 days later when Pentecost came. And people from every nation, tribe, heard the apostles speaking in their own language the great news of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't until one of the remnant turned out to be the Son of God, crucified for our sins and resurrected to bring in the new age, pouring out his spirit upon humanity, that suddenly men and women from all over the world, from every nation, from every tribe, from every language, came to learn from the Jews and from the king of the Jews the way to walk in the, la- in the, in the ways of the Lord. For it was in the suffering and glory of Christ and his people that the fulfilment of promises, the fulfilment of God's promises, the fulfilment of Isaiah's words really took place. You see, Isaiah saw Christ's glory, but he also saw Christ's suffering. And the preparation of the people for the coming of Christ's glory is to tell them of Christ's suffering. The nation, the remnant, it had to go through the sufferings to reach the glory. And so the sufferings and the glories of Christ were being taught to us hundreds of years before he came. But of course Israel didn't listen to the sufferings bit. They just wanted the glory bit. And so they were not prepared when he came for what he was coming to do. And the sufferings and the glories of Christ are also the sufferings and glories of Christ's people. Which is why even today we see Christians persecuted and suffering. The martyrs crying out how long before that day of judgment finally will come. It used to be the communists who were persecuting Christians, but now it's the Muslims. Northern Nigeria, terrible warfare, terrible danger of being a Christian in the northern part of Nigeria today. The Egyptian context, who knows what the outcome of this new government will be. But the Coptic Christians are not sleeping comfortably in their beds now. Indeed, all of North Africa, it's difficult to be a Christian. In the Middle East, it's very hard to be a Christian. In Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan. That's why the Christians have left Palestine in towns like Bethlehem. They have fled. Their numbers are decimated. Only a few remain. But on the last day, when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, as our creed declares, when that happens, it will be like our New Testament reading. Those who have suffered will be glorified. Turn with me to our New Testament reading again, would you? We don't need Isaiah again. We've been through that. Come to 2 Thessalonians Look again at what he's saying here. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us 
when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So the Lord Jesus will come, but until he comes, affliction of the righteous is to be expected. We do not have the promise that becoming a Christian will make your life easy. There are terrific advantages in being Christian in this lifetime, but remember the rose bush has terrible thorns, doesn't it? And that is the character of the Christian life. We are like a rose bush, beautiful and thorny at the same time. There's a glorious wonder of forgiveness of sins and of rebirth, but there's the terrible pain that goes with it that we are not like the rest of society and they will not like us and they will make it difficult for us. Because we lived in such a Christianised culture as Australian, so far the persecution here is minimal. But our brothers and sisters around the world are suffering maximally and dreadfully and we mustn't forget them. But do not worry, the righteous will not win, the unrighteous will not win. They will suffer, as he says in verse 9, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified. But notice where Jesus is glorified. In his saints, to be marveled at among all who believed because our testimony to you was believed. It's important to learn the lessons from Isaiah. And there are two types to draw your attention to this morning. Firstly, is about God's plans. They will not be thwarted by human wickedness. At a moment of time, the wicked may prosper. And they may look like victors. But don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Evil will not win. God is in control. He has not fallen asleep. Evil will be punished. When things are seemingly going wrong, remember God hasn't lost control. God's plans involve our suffering. Even the suffering of his Christ and of his people was central to his plans. But eventually, God will bring justice, salvation, glory and peace for all nations and peoples. So hold on. Don't lose your confidence. The crucifixion, led to the resurrection. Friday must have been dreadful, but Sunday was wonderful. Secondly, we see now God's people streaming in from every nation because of the crucified Christ who brought salvation, not only for the Jews, but also for all peoples. We who are Gentiles and not Jews have come to learn from the God of Israel how to walk in his ways. For salvation comes from the Jews to us. The Old Testament is a Christian book, not a Jewish book. It was given for us. We learn from it. And one of the joys and pleasures of living in Sydney at this point in time in history is the multicultural nature of Christianity. It's a joy that we see and feel here in this cathedral every week, that we have people from everywhere who come to name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.
and to acknowledge that great one Jewish man who was God the Son. So as God's people, we mustn't be surprised by evil, we mustn't be seduced by evil or supporters or sponsors of evil. The world will tell us all kinds of lies about idolatry, about wealth, about happiness, about leadership, for the world still will hate those who refuse to conform to it, but will speak of God's ways and suffer the truth for speaking up. We need to speak up, my friends, more. In the office, in the neighbourhood, in the family. We are so polite, we are so diplomatic, we are so concerned to fit in with our society that though they blaspheme the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in our presence, we say nothing much more than pass the sugar. We need to speak up. We need to be able to say, Jesus Christ is King. He's my Lord. For to be God's people, we need to be different to the rest of the world. Jerusalem, Judah, wasn't. And that's why it was destroyed. When God brings judgment, the world is destroyed and those who share it. But he will not forget the righteous. And so suffering now, we share the glory when he arrives. And that's why Paul talks of his prayers in these last couple of verses in 2 Thessalonians. If you still have it open, I hope. When he speaks in verse 11, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfil every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray for each other in these words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death and for his resurrection. We thank you for bringing us into your kingdom to be citizens of your great city, the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem, to hear of your ways, to walk in your ways. So, Father, please pour your spirit into us, filling us that we may walk in ways that are worthy of our calling, that we may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith inspired by your spirit, enabled by your power, so that when people see us, they may see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would be glorified in us, that we may share in his glory. And please bring us that day when the Lord Jesus Christ will return and people will marvel at him because of us and marvel that we are his people after all that the Lord Jesus would ultimately, permanently and finally
be glorified throughout all the world and that we may share in his glory forever. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.